Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, and I have to share with you, I am particularly excited about our guest for today, um, James Kingsland, who has written uh, a monumental text in my opinion. And I just can't wait to get into it with him and, and really start to unpack the implications of this remarkable tome. But the, the reason I came to know James and his book is um, his publisher reached out to me very graciously a couple of months ago to uh, consider endorsing it. And um, I said, sure, I'll give it a read. And very often when I get these sorts of requests, I start them with a little bit of skepticism. But within just a few pages, I realized, wow, this is a special book. Um, and so that's how uh, James and I met, so to speak. Um, I met through his mind. Uh, reading this remarkable book, um, had a very easy time endorsing it. I'll share my endorsement in just a second. So what I want to do, of course, is start with a brief bio about who James is um, and then start to launch into what I believe will be a, a really rewarding time because the scope of this text is so vast that uh, if any problem we'll have, it'll be one of just reining it in and um, keeping it in under six hours, so to speak. So anyway, so here's here's James. So James is a science journalist with more than 25 years experience working for publications, including New Scientist, Nature, and The Guardian. He began his career as a sub-editor, but over the years has focused more and more on his own writing, including features for new scientists on topics, including whether antidepressants work and why we age, as well as articles for The Guardian on subjects ranging from the Dalai Lama to ayahuasca. In 2016, he published his first book, Siddhartha's Brain, about the science of meditation and enlightenment. And in August of this year, 2019, his second book comes out called Am I Dreaming? The New Science of Consciousness and How Altered States Reboot the Brain. He's a practicing Buddhist, which parenthetically, James, I did not know that until I read your bio, so I definitely want to talk to you about how that came about. He meditates daily and over the past few years has been exploring other ways of cultivating a healthy mind, including psychedelic drugs, hypnotism, and lucid dreaming. And so here's my riff, um, the endorsement that I sent. Rigorously researched, elegantly crafted, and personally inspired, this is a wonderful contribution to the burgeoning field of neurophenomenology, where science meets spirit. Every page delivers an insight. This book is not for the faint of heart, but for intrepid, intrepid explorers of consciousness who are willing to make the shattering discovery that reality is not what you think it is, yet it's ironically what you think into existence. Probing altered states helps us wake up to the natural state and to realize that it is all but a dream within a dream. And James, I, I just added this. I'm going to send it to the publisher to see if we can still tuck this last little line. But um, this last little line is the following. If you are not shocked by this book, you don't understand it, um, end quote. And so it's, it's a shocking book in, in the best sense of that word. And, and to me, when I read it, it reminded me of the stories of when the historical Buddha was giving his first teachings on emptiness. And I'm sure you know this, James, you know, 500 of his most senior students had heart attacks. And um, I think they did so because the teachings on emptiness pulled the rug out from uh, under the reality that they felt they were standing on. And in the same way, that's what this book delivers is the 
kind of shocking truth that reality is in fact not what you think it is. Um, and that's no small thing. And so I want to start, if it's okay, with what inspired you to write this book? What, what was the seed that um, sparked this uh, remarkable journey for you? Okay, well, thanks very much for those kind words. And um, by the way, I think it's terrific that you set up nightclub and at night school. Um, such a good idea, because I remember when I was a kid, uh, my brother, sister and I, we used to come down in the morning to breakfast and uh, we'd be bursting to uh, to tell our parents about all these wonderful, wacky dreams we'd had. <laughs> and um, my parents would uh, roll their eyes as if to say, oh, no, not again, not this nonsense all over again. And uh, so after a while, we stopped um, talking about our dreams. And I think that's just such a shame. It's uh, one third of our lifetimes and um, uh, such a, a rich source of uh, inspiration and possible learning. And I think it's wonderful that you created a forum where people can come together and share their dreams and learn how to make the most of them. So yeah. you know, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, again, thank you for those kind words. And, and um, as, as you will see, if you Stay with us as a member of my club um, in our next podcast, or I should say webinar, we're going to be talking, in fact, exactly about that, this kind of dismissive relationship that the Western world has to these so-called altered states, you know, that we, we are essentially a monophasic culture where we have this extraordinary um, kind of unconscious bias towards wake centricity, you know, the only way we can know mind and reality is through the waking state, and, and I would argue um, that, in fact, if we don't honor the arenas of mind through sleeping and dreaming states, we're, we're leaving um, essentially two-thirds of reality out. I mean, not, not temporarily, but categorically, that uh, we're losing the ability to relate to mind and reality in these extremely subtle dimensions. And, and this is exactly what your book talks about. So let's get into it. So, so again, tell us how, what sparked you to write this? Um, okay. Yeah, so your uh, little uh, biog has, has brought me up to working at the Guardian newspaper. This was in my late 40s, oh. and I was already doing some meditation daily, but I was starting to experience what some people might call a midlife crisis. Um, oh. Perhaps the meditation gave me an insight into the kind of person I was becoming, though it wasn't helping perhaps as much as it should have because uh, with the passing years, I felt I was becoming an increasingly angry, judgmental and intolerant kind of person. And um, it doesn't give me any pleasure to, to admit that, uh, but um, probably on the outside, no one noticed any change, uh, but I certainly noticed. And I didn't like what I saw very much. I didn't like myself very much. So to give you a flavor, um, I used to cycle to work every day from North London to King's Cross, which took me over the famous zebra crossing on Abbey Road, uh, made famous by the Beatles. And uh, every morning without fail, there would be hordes of tourists on the pavement waiting to have their turn, to have their picture taken, frozen in mid-stride on the crossing. And uh, of course, they used to hold up the traffic. And this used to drive me nuts especially if I was late for work. And uh, these young people would 
selfishly hold up the traffic for 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 quite a while and and be be oblivious to what they were doing. So anyway, I I, I would get really angry about this. And one morning, I didn't stop. I just kept on cycling and spread straight across the crossing, narrowly missing, hitting someone and injuring them. Um, so yeah, we could we could laugh now, but it, it could have been quite nasty. So that was really sobering, and. Um, I didn't like this angry, judgmental, middle-aged man I'd become, and I decided I wanted to do something about it, uh, which is I, how I came to try lucid dreaming to complement my meditation practice, and later psychedelics in the in the Netherlands and also in Peru. Um, I'd read I'd read research suggesting that psychedelics can boost mindfulness, openness to experience and acceptance, and uh, um, I decided I was going to give it a go uh, because, I mean, according to the research, uh, after, for example, after drinking ayahuasca, your levels of mindfulness could be boosted uh, to those seen in somebody who's been meditating for seven years or so, uh, probably only temporarily. But nonetheless, this was exciting. So um, I went went on to try all sorts of things, uh, but I only tried things that were backed by sound science. But nonetheless, it was quite a ride. And I have to say, I'm still a, a student of these experiences. Uh, I haven't got a lot. I st- I've still got a lot to learn. But so the book is principally about the science r- rather than the practice. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And so um, I want to, you know, one of the challenges for me is like, oh, my gosh, like, where do we start? Because they're literally every page of this book delivers a, a, a wallop. And so there's so many wallops to unpack. But. But let, let me just start um, by sharing with our readers something that you so generously shared with me, um, because I often uh, send to my guests, you know, is there something in particular that you want to discuss? And, and what you sent here, James, I thought was incredibly articulate and completely confluent with what we're doing with our charity with the nightclub and night school. So let me start with this. Um, and because it's so beautifully written, I will simply just reread it to our audience. And then from there... We'll just spontaneously take it wherever it takes us. But this is what James suggested, and I think it's a fantastic starting point. So um, the unique selling point of this book is probably the new science of consciousness, which sees all experience, perceptions, thoughts, emotions, etc., as a delicate balancing act between raw sensory evidence and our beliefs or expectations about the world. It may come as a surprise to many of us, for example, that expectation plays a leading role in much of what we see and hear. Seen in this light, it becomes clear why our brains are so good at conjuring virtual reality scenarios in our dreams. Because even though we don't realize it, the brain is doing this continually while we're awake. Dreams are just ordinary brain function unplugged from bottom-up sensory evidence on the one hand, and top-down reality checking, paren, metacognition or secondary consciousness, and paren, on the other. This leads quite nicely into lucid dreaming, when our reality checking faculties come back online. And so, wow, let's unpack this. This is so rich. And and to me, it was one of the many take-home messages I derived from your book, this kind of challenge of our usual uncontested view that most of what we perceive in the world is is represented from our sensory faculties you know this kind of upward direction of sensory flow to the brain and yet you you so elegantly contest that by saying well 
not quite so that you know a large part of what dictates our perception of reality is deeply colored influenced by um, top-down uh, machinations and so let's let's unpack this for our listeners a little bit james because i i agree with you completely that in many ways this is the the heart essence of this book and how and how it ties in as you suggest here to uh, to lucid dreaming so help us understand this yeah sure because um this stuff came as a shock to me too i have to say because um we're all familiar with with optical illusions for example there's the uh, famous illusion where you have a picture and you can either see it as two faces profile of two faces uh facing each other or you can see it as the space between those faces namely as a vase and your brain will vacillate between the two interpretations first you see the faces then you see the vase and you can kind of choose which you see depending on what you concentrate on and what you expect and we're all very familiar with that kind of illusion um but um i think we we dismiss it as a kind of curiosity a one-off curiosity but in fact this this stuff is going on all the time in the background of our thinking uh, because what it shows is that fundamentally our percep- perception is driven by by expectation by by top down processing and this applies also to to hearing to smell to touch um and to to cognition in general so i mean i had another shock i came across a um um an audio illusion a hearing illusion on uh twitter someone shared a post of a video of a dinky little toy uh right. from the from the uh, uh uh ben 10 children's animated tv series and um it's a little figurine showing the character from the series called um uh let me think what <laughs> called uh I've forgotten the name now. Oh, no worries. Anyway, let hang on, let me let me find out the name. That link by the way while you're doing that is something that I will post for our our viewers because you you um give a link to this thing and it's a uh, it's it's kind of spooky actually. Um It's very spooky, yeah. And the character name is Brainstorm. Yeah. Um and what happens is uh if you press the button of this toy uh the sound comes out it flashes and the sound comes out saying brainstorm and if that's what you're expecting to hear that's what you will hear but if you think green needle just before the button is pressed you hear green needle it's as if the the toy is reading your mind um which i found remarkable so you know you can you can switch from one to the other just like the uh the vase illusion you can you can decide what you're going to hear and it comes out quite clearly either brainstorm or green needle depending on what you're already thinking depending what you're expecting to hear so um it's another powerful demonstration and and this goes on all the time even as we're speaking as we're listening to language the brain is kind of uh it's predicting uh what it wants to hear it's is for example in a sentence uh the brain will chop up the words it'll make gaps between the sentence 
But if you create a sonogram of the noise uh, of that sentence, it'll just be it'll be a blur. You know, it'll you you'd be very hard pressed to see where one word ends and the next begins. But because we're uh, we're uh, encultured by by our language, we're programmed by our language. We what we do is we impose structure on what we're hearing, um, and 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 that's how we we interpret what what is being said. There's a lot of processing goes on, a lot of expectation and prediction that goes on quite uh, beneath the radar of our conscious awareness. Yeah, and what I think what what is so disconcerting about this, as you reference in your um, book, James, is how not only is it um, so deeply unconscious, but I would also interject the, the absolute lightning rapidity, the speed with which this takes place. And, and I mean, just to give one very brief example, I mean, you're listening to my voice right now and almost instantaneously you're deriving meaning out of these compression and rare fraction sound waves that are impinging upon your ear. when. When, when fundamentally that's that's a secondary process it's just that's taking place um, on top of the perceptual um, data so to speak and so I, I think when people start to realize how unbelievably quickly this takes place and how subversively it takes place then you start to realize why the Buddha is sometimes referred to as the awakened one and by contradistinction of course that means the rest of us are asleep. And, and this is one of the reasons I became so interested in, in the Buddhist tradition altogether, because I was immediately intrigued by, you know, the very etymology of his name, you know, the awakened one, and what does that really mean? And I think largely what it means is, is in fact, bringing these unconscious processes into the light of conscious awareness, so that then we can at least establish a relationship to them, because otherwise we're, we're prisoners of these processes. You know, we, we believe we exist in a dualistic um, reality when fundamentally that reality is is projected and imputed by these unconscious processes and then and so by bringing this together and putting it out in front with really sound scientific principles which is really the deep bow of gratitude I extend to you I mean you have done your homework in this book and the data that you collect in such a compelling way I think will will land with real impact in the Western world um, and so it, let, let's talk further about this because. Again, just to come back to what I was saying at the outset, I think this book is shocking in so many ways, but one of the ways it's shocking is that it it really um, destroys representationalism. It really destroys this illusion that there is, in fact, a solid, lasting, independent reality out there that we somehow passively represent, you know, sometimes referred to literally as the camera theory of perception. You know, we run around just passively clicking and representing this world. And what you're saying is that, oh, MG, it is so far from that, that we are um, not, you know, passive victims of our reality. We are, um, in fact, magnificent co-creators co and actors of this reality. And so um, I love this book so much because not only does it re bring forth this uh, really kind of tectonic earthquake cognitive earthquake about the way we relate to reality, but it's also, James, I think, highly empowering if, in fact, we grok what you're saying, that if we realize our role as magnificent co-creators, which, again, I'd love to tie this back into lucid dreams because that's what happens when the mind is free from sensory constraint. I, I left this book um, 
not only feeling shocked in the best sense, but also really empowered that I am not a victim of my reality. I, I have tremendous co-creative capacities to, to um, take control over my life and the way I relate to my world. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that, the death of representationalism and the role of um, the individual as magnificent co-creator. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. It, it is shocking to start with, but then uh, you start to realize that we do, it gives us uh, an in, mindfulness gives us an in, a way of uh, knowing what's happening to us simply by um, pointing our attention in particular directions, by, by deliberately, consciously, actively deciding where we're going to put our attention. We can uh, we can get to know what's what's happening to us, but otherwise, as, as you say, it all happens so rapidly. We just have have no idea that that it's happening at all. And uh, so, I mean, another example is is the placebo effect, mm. um, which uh, just uh, maybe ten years ago, people wouldn't have thought that the range of effects were were possible. The uh, not only psychological effects, but also physical effects on, on your, your gut, on your metabolism, on your cardiovascular system. Simply the, the power of belief um, that uh, a pill or a procedure is going to work has such a strong effect, so much so that uh, when they create a new drug, uh, they usually they struggle to, uh, to have it perform better than a, than a sugar pill, than a placebo pill. Uh, so, so it, it it brings a lot of power as as well as uh, as well as being slightly shocking. Yeah, it's beautiful, and and, and, as, and as we know, you know, I mean, the placebo effect, um, as well as its darker cousin, you know, the nocebo effect, how um, beliefs can um, damage. It's a slight misnomer, isn't it? Because it's really a mind effect. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. And and, and the other, I think, really compelling thing. This is where. Your beautiful chapter on uh, hypnosis comes into play, um, and also what I'm really interested in in this regard is is the extraordinary um, power is this revealed through things like dissociative identity disorder or what used to be called multiple personality disorder. I mean, the data around that is really shocking about how within a matter of seconds, uh, an entire body. Um, Kind of matrix can be altered, you know, changing eye color, changing handedness, changing um, anti antibody titers and the like. Um, it, it's really quite dramatic what can take place there. And so, so how, when you started talking um, and exploring, um, well, let's just go with it with hypnosis because in many ways, when we're talking about waking up, a, a synonym for that I think would be um, dehypnosis. You know, wake uh, becoming dehypnotized. Talk to us a little bit about what you write about so beautifully in the book, James, about the, the place of hypnosis and also deeply conjoined with that is what you talk about is um, reality is, is um, hallucination, um, kind of, you know, hypothesis and hallucination, because these are, these are all different angles to get at this central attack on representationalism, the fact that you know, we register reality in this kind of passive way. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, hypnosis um, demonstrates that you can change almost any 
conscious perception. Uh, simply by the power of suggestion, you can make someone believe that a black and white photograph is color or vice versa. You can make them believe they're possessed by the spirit of Elvis, uh, that they've, they've become a chimpanzee or that their, their arm is so heavy they can no longer lift it. And uh, providing you have a certain degree of suggestibility, you can implant these ideas in, into somebody's head. And uh, these people on in stage hypnotist shows, they're not playing along. They really, yes. they believe what's happening to them. They believe that their perception has been fundamentally altered. And and the explanation for this, which which emerges from, from this new uh, science of uh, consciousness, is that the, um, the brain is organized hierarchically with uh, predictions coming from the top, from the uh, from the core or, or the peak of the hierarchy, and in the opposite direction are, are prediction errors reported back by the senses. Mm. And um, what hypnotists do, and what what uh, charismatic politicians can do, and preachers, is kind of hijack the top floor of that hierarchy and start sending out their own predictions. Um, uh, about what we're experiencing and what is real and what is not, and at least temporarily, uh, they can they can suspend our reality checking faculties. And the way they do this is by having us focus our attention exclusively, for example, on their voice. And it kind of we're kind of uh, mesmerized, literally mesmerized, into. Uh, believing what they're saying and, and uh, effectively what they've done is hijacked the executive level of that hierarchy of conscious processing and uh, it demonstrates once again the, the power of expectation over everything we see, hear, smell, touch, think and believe. Yes, isn't it? it, it wouldn't it be fair to say, James, that, that, that um, you know, one, one of the things that, that I talk about with night um nightclub and night school is uh, you know kind of the code language and and how it is that many of these terms that we're using like darkness is a cold word for the unconscious mind and for ignorance lucidity is a cold word for awareness and so in this regard when you say that what i flash on is another way to use this using the code language of the nocturnal um, practices is that we fundamentally go non-lucid when we fall under the influence of politicians or hypnotists and the like. And to me, it's yet another iteration of this um, really disconcerting tendency that we have until we are stabilized in wakeful states of consciousness, where we surrender our intelligence, we surrender our awareness, our lucidity um, to these forces out external and um, internal. And, and for me, one of the things that really inspired me on in your book that I honestly wish you would have talked a little bit more about is that not only are these narratives um, from the external world so incredibly effective in uh, inducing, so to speak, non-lucidity within us, but these narratives are also part of the, I mean, you talk about it as the default mode network and the salience network, which I want to um, have you talk about later. But the idea is that we, we are constantly giving ourselves um, post-hypnotic suggestions, if you, if you will, that we're always depending on the narratives that we tell ourselves, which can be revealed in meditation, by the way, which is one reason I think meditation is such a powerful de-hypnotic agent, it really helps us to discover how it is that not only the external 
agents have this capacity to put us to sleep, to, to keep us hypnotized. But in fact, we're hypnotizing ourselves all the time by buying into these subconscious gossips, these narratives that underlie our so-called conscious awareness. I mean, do, is that one way that you could look at this? Absolutely. I mean, it's really quite, uh, it's quite scary the way uh, the mind goes looking for confirmations of its biases. I mean, we, we see it quite clearly, for example, on social media, or on Twitter, where you follow people who who confirm your your prejudices about the world as not you know not a problem with a particular political uh, belief system. You know, it happens to all of us. We we seek out uh, information, data that will will confirm our biases. And in fact, um, interestingly, this is this is the basis of how the brain controls all kinds of actions. It it uh, it predicts the consequences of a particular action and um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the, the muscles or the autonomic nervous system uh, fulfill that prediction. And that's kind of what, what we do to ourselves, as you say, it's almost like a self, self-hypnosis. We go out there and we, we find the information which will, will confirm our biases. So we can carry on on this narrow, narrow track determined by our automatic uh, the automatic systems that are built up in our brain to uh, to cope with re- with reality but um, then again as, as you say uh, mindfulness it, it provides a way out it provides a way of stepping back just a little and, and watching it as it goes on and uh, and uh, uh, focusing our attention and rather than behaving automatically we we focus in on on our senses and we can we can weaken the power of of these expectations, these biases. Yes, isn't it? I mean, I, I the double entendre, you know, meditation quite literally um, uh, brings us to our senses um, in both senses of that word. That's and right. To me, it's like you know what you were saying, James, about how we're looking for that and whatnot that confirms our biases. I mean, I argue that this is the fundamental essence of gossip. I mean, we gossip because we're uncertain about our reality and we want to find co-conspirators that will help us establish the veracity of our fundamental um, bullshit. <laughs> That's so I, it, yeah. That we find it very reassuring to to confirm our biases, you know, that yeah. we, we we get a kind of uh, a little kick every time that happens. Yeah, it's probably. In fact, I, I would be interesting to see if there's a slight dopamine release every time that happens. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Yeah, yeah. Little, you know, this little injection into the egoic network. And for me, just to reinstate to tie this into um, lucid dreaming and what we do, I, I have the strongest um, belief that we uh, fundamentally have not only are we we could say unwitting victims of this kind of process of of non-lucidity using my terms, but I would go farther and, and say, James, that we actually have a lust for non-lucidity. Uh, we love to be captured. We, we love to be what uh, neuroscientists talk about. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.